Parshat Noach has lots of fun things in it. Obviously, the whole story of the Mabul. In the past, we've talked several times about uh, about the whole story that happened in the tent uh, with Ham and what Kanan's role was that. And we've talked about that. We've talked about the raven and the dove. Um, but I want to go to the end of the parsha because the very end of the parsha, which you have in front of you, introduces Avraham, who um, and I'm, I'm suggesting in the past that I think Avraham really is the first important human character or the first real human character in Tanakh. Uh, that Adam and Noah and everybody else are sort of like stick figures who don't really seem to have much personality. And Avraham is the first character that we identify with. It's really the book of Avraham. And the text seems to speed up to get to meet him. Uh, even, the, even the genealogy in Parakid Aleph is shorter than the one in Parakay. It's like two psukim each. He lived this long, he had a kid, and then he died. Boom, boom, boom. Next, next, next. And then we get to Terach. Now, Terach is the character that I really want to look at here. And Avram, and in a sense, their relationship. Uh, because in the text, well, let's just see what it says. What, what, what conclusions you could draw about Terach and Avram and their relationship from the text? Right, so Terach is 70 and he gives birth to these three. Which seems to be repetitious, but Terach earns the medal of Ela Toldot. Right? We have Toldot Adam, we have Toldot Noach, we have Toldot Shem, then we have Toldot, we have Toldot Shmaibarts, by the way, then we have Toldot Terach, we have Toldot Ishmael, Toldot Yitzchak, Toldot Esav twice, Toldot Yaakov. Interestingly, we don't have Toldot Avraham, meaning that that's never a phrase in, in Breshit or anywhere in, anywhere else. But Terach gets Toldot. So I want you to think about that, because right now we're going to grade how we should view Terach. Good guy or bad guy, essentially. Because, by the way, how did we grow up with Terach? Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Bad guy, right? Bad, bad guy, right. Okay. Then we're going to see we're going to see where we got bad guy from and where the 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 source that we got bad guy from got it from. And that, of course, is foreshadowing the fact that Lot's going to play an important role in the whole story. Good. So then, and Haran predeceases, and he's the second person in history that we hear about it, hear about predeceasing his father. The first one, of course, was Havel. And he dies in the presence of Terach, and that leads to a whole long discussion about who was born in Ur-Kastim, or does that mean the place where the family lived? Ur-Kastim is, of course, in Iraq. Um, and the word Ur can be one of two things. It can mean city, like Uru Salim, which becomes Yerushalayim, or it can be Ur as in Hebrew, which means a fire or furnace. We're going to play with that. So in the meantime, Haran died, and Haran had already been married. He has a kid. Avram and Achor get married. Shem Eshet Avram Sarai. Who does Avram marry? Mary Sarai. Who's Sarai? We don't know. We're not told anything. But Shem Eshet Achor Milka Bataran Avi Milka Avi Yiskat. But Nachor's wife is Milka. And who's Milka? The daughter of Haran. Who's Haran? The father of Milka, the father of Yiskat. So there's a few strange things just in this pasuk uh, already to look at. One of them is why is Nachor getting more pressed than Avram? I mean, Nachor is important. Nahor is a big part of our family. Rivka comes from Nahor. Rachel Leah comes from Nahor. 
But on the other hand, he's not Avram. And Avram's wife gets no press whatsoever, named Sarai. And Nahor's wife is Milcah. And who's Milcah? Bat Haran. Who's Haran? The father of Milcah. So Milcah must be a pretty important lady. And she's got a <laughs> sister named Yiska. Now, the real nut in this whole piece, and this is not the main thing I want to do, but in Parshanut wise, you got to deal with this. Who is Haran in this Pasuk? Father of Lot. Or not. Right, you're right. It could be the father of Lot, in which case we have a very confusing presentation and a confused situation. What it means, if this Haran is the same Haran as in Pasuk Chavchet, then that means very nicely that that Avram and Nahor each married their nieces. Well, shall we say Nahor married his niece, and um, and Avram is going to later adopt his nephew, who are orphans. Um, and who is um, Nahor's wife? She's Milcah, the daughter of the dead Haran, who himself is the father of Yiska and Milcah. Right, which means that Yiska is another orphan girl who's left alone because we never hear the name Yiska again in Tanakh. This is the one time. So the Midrash famously, and it may be more than Midrash, puts this together and says, oh, Sarai must be Yiska. And what happened is Avram and Nahor each married their orphaned nieces, which means we're going to assume that Haran had three kids, Lot, Yiska, and Milcah. And Avram took care of two of them, and, Milka, and Nahor took care of the other one, and what a beautiful family it is. Except then we have a problem. Why is Haran presented as Avi Milkav Avi Iska, and not presented as Avi Lot? Right? And the fact that he's Lot's father seemed to be pretty central. The second thing is, why is Sarai called Sarai, and, and then her name is Iska? It's a little confusing. So there's another partially way to look at this, which is there's another person named Haran in the area. And by the way, that wouldn't be so strange because what town does the family settle in or maybe originally come from? Haran. And in many of the dialects, the Chet and the He were interchangeable. So it could be just like Nahor is a name that appears in the family and the city later is called Ir Nahor. In the same way, it could be that Haran is another guy. And this Haran is famous because he's got a daughter, Milcah, who marries Nahor. And he's got another daughter, Yiska, who's important enough to mention her, but she disappears. So we don't know who, we, who this is. It could be the first way, it could be the second way. In the meantime, Atis Sarai Akara in La Valad, which, by the way, is not information we're given about anybody else, but it's important here because of what's going to happen. That Sarai is barren, doesn't have a kid. Vaikach Terach, this is interesting, they're in Ur Kastim, they're in Iraq. And by the way, if you want to go from Iraq, well, let's talk about it. Terach at Avram Beno, that Lot ben Aran ben Beno. So Terach takes Avram his son. He takes Lot his grandson, who's now orphaned. The eight Sarai Kalato, he takes Sarai. Eshet Avram Beno. And we're given all the Yichas. By the way, who does he not take here? Nahor. Nahor and Milkat are not mentioned. Where does Terach go? Terach leaves Ur Kastim to go to where? To Canaan, the original Lechlacha. Now, if you're going from Iraq to Israel, how do you travel? What's the direction you would take from Iraq to Israel? West. So you'd think you'd go west, except you can't go west because then you'll die. Because you're going to walk right in the middle of a desert that just doesn't end. So you have to go north. 
and you essentially follow the Euphrates north up until the headwaters of the Euphrates, and then you follow along in the mountainous area that'll get you basically into southern Syria and Lebanon, and then you'll come down to Israel. And that's the way Terach travels. He travels up and he gets to Haran, which is in southern Turkey, northern Syria. And he stops there and he and he settles in. They live there. We don't hear about Nachor and Milka. We'll hear about them in several parshiot that they're up there also. And Terach lives to the ripe old age of 205 and he dies in Haran. Okay? Now, from the simple read of the text, how old was Terach when Avram was born? 70. 70. Which means, how old should Avram be um, when Terach dies? 35. Should be 145, right? 135. 135, sorry, 135. And yet we have a problem because... As we, as we see later on in the text, Avram is 75 when he gets this call, which means that the sequence of the text is not accurate, meaning we have Terach come and Terach dies. And then Vayomer Adonai Avram happened earlier while Terach is still alive. Okay, but we just have to know that the text does that. It will often finish somebody's story. Like Avram is, Avram's death is recorded before uh, Yitzchak becomes a father. And yet, Yitzchak becomes the father while Avram still got 15 years left on the ticker. So we, the text does that. It'll finish somebody's story and then go back. So Hashem speaks to Avram. Where is Avram at this time? Unclear. Is he in Haran or is he in Urkastim? But Hashem says to Avram, leave, you on your own, leave your land, your family, and Beit Avicha, your father's household. The land I'm going to show you, and we all know this great brachot. And the brachot seem to be dependent on it, meaning if you go do this, these are what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, etc., etc. So why does he tell him to leave me, Beit Avicha? And why does he say, Lech Lecha? And here's the, here's the essential problem is, what is the mission that Hashem is sending Avram on? Why is he sending him? He says, I'm sending you in order to be a blessing and to be a source of blessing for everybody. Right? Now, how is Avram going to be a blessing? <coughs> how is Avram going to be a blessing? So, I'll, I'll answer the question, because I think you guys would all answer this way. Avram is going to teach, but may more teach by example of what it means to be a proper person. We'll talk what that means in a minute. To be the kind of person who represents God. And so Avram is going to be a blessing because he's going to bring God into people's lives. The true God into people's lives. Okay? And just as an, as proof of that, if you take a look here in Source 4, when, when Avraham is escorting the guests away from his house towards stone, and Hashem decides he's going to tell Avram about his plans, we hear Hashem talking to himself, Am I going to keep from Avram what I'm about to do? Avram is going to be a great nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him. Why? What do I know about him? He's going to direct his children and his household after him. 
Vishamru Derech Adonai. He's there. He's going to teach them to keep the way of God. What's the way of God? Lasot tzedakah umishpat. So he's going to teach them to do tzedakah umishpat, right? So now that means that Avraham is coming to the land. He's going to live a life and promote and publicize tzedakah umishpat, human accountability to God and just society, and he'll be a blessing which raises a humongous question. Avram comes to Canaan and he says, we got to set up a proper society. We got to be an ethical society. We got to treat each other properly and we're accountable to God for what we do. And we got to take care of the stranger and we got to be uh, solicitous. We got to be welcoming, etc." And anybody who's anybody could turn around to him and say, before telling me to take the moat from between my eyes, I'll tell you to take the beam between your eyes. Where's your father? How did you abandon your father? Think about it. Avram leaves his father behind. His father's already older. And from what we know, he never sees him again. And his father's got another, another, um, how do you call it? Um, um, Third of his life. 60 years left on the ticket. Where is he? Yaakov, at least, at the end of his journey, comes back and, and spends time with Yitzchak at the end of his life, right? So the, the mission seems to be kind of kind of subverted. If he had said, then I'm fine. Take your whole family, including your father, and pick up and go to Quran. Instead, he says, This gives us a sense that Avram cannot accomplish his mission as long as he's still tied to his father's house. As counter-message as that might be, that seems to be the issue. And that leads us to this next passage. In passage 2, which is a passage we all know more from the Haggadah than anything else, when Yoshua assembles the people to do his farewell speech in Shechem, the first thing he says, We have to read this passage very carefully. Your ancestors always lived on the other side of the river, the river being the Euphrates. Who are your ancestors? Terach, Avi Avraham, Vavinachor. Who are your ancestors? Terach, because Terach's our real ancestor, because we're all related to Terach through Avraham and Nachor. The father of Avraham and Vavinachor. What are the next three words? Vayavdu Elohim Acherim. Who's Vayavdu? Vayavdu is not singular. Vayavdu means they worship other gods. Who's the they? Simple pshat in the pasuk is Avraham v'nachor worshipped other gods. Now you can say, ooh, how could you say such a terrible thing? The answer is we say it in the Haggadah. Look at this passage from the Haggadah. Mitchila obdei avodah zarah yu avotenu v'achshav kevano makom lavorato we used to be idol worshippers, and God brought us close to His avodah. And He quotes these, and they quote this psukim, meaning that Abraham, who was brought close to God, was brought close from being a pagan. So Avram is told to leave his father's house, but how is he any different than his father's house? Very difficult. So I want to show you one other passage that would seem to have absolutely nothing to do with us but I'll bring it together. 
the, the big question that we've already raised here is, why is that? And this is a big question everybody has to deal with. Why is Abraham selected? See, Noah, I'm giving the introduction. Ela told him, Noah, Noah, East Sadiq, Noah, he can't say anything better about anybody, walks with God. So now when he's going to destroy the world, Noah is saved. I get it. I'm not given any information about Avram, why Avram is selected for this great brachan to be the father of this great nation and be a source of blessing for the whole world. I'm not given any information. So I'm wondering. And I am given a little bit of a hint, which is that Avram can only achieve this if he leaves his father's house behind. Okay. And I might get another piece that says when he was in his father's house, they were all doing Avodah So he had to leave his father's house behind in order to get away from that. Okay, maybe. Take a look at this passage, which has nothing to do with Avram. It's about a fellow named Gidon. Gidon is a member of the Shevet of Menasheh. And somewhere in the 11th or 10th, 11th century BCE, probably, he is uh, living in his town of Ofrat Avi Azri, which is up north of Shechem. And a malach appears, and the malach tells him, you're going to save Am Yisrael. Okay, and the whole story there. And Gidon, in the meantime, it turns out his father has a, well, you'll see it. That night, after Gidon was initiated, God says, your father has a big bull that he's holding on to. He's got another one that's evidently seven years old. Destroy the Baal Mizbeach that your father owns. Which means Gidon, a Jewish hero, the first guy ever asked by the Jewish people to be a king has a father who has an altar for Baal. And there's an Asherah tree planted right next to Baal, because Asherah is Baal's girlfriend. So every time you have him, he's back to Baal, you have to plant that Asherah tree. They shouldn't be separated. And you should cut down the Asherah tree. Then you build the Mizbeach for Hashem. A rock cropping. Up there. Take that ox and take the wood of the Asherah, use it to build a fire on the Mizbeach and offer up the animal. All right? So what happens? And Gidon takes some of his servants and he does what God told him. He was afraid of doing it in front of everybody. He did it at night. In other words, he was afraid of making a public demonstration, so he did it at night. Right? And the people get up in the morning and they see that his is destroyed, the Asher is destroyed, the bull has been offered up on this new Mizbeach. He says, Who did this? They did some investigation, they find out. Which means, by the way, Gidon was not careful to make sure that nobody knew who did it, but he didn't want to do it in front of the people. He evidently did not mind that they would find out. So the people say to his father, bring your son out, we got to kill him, because he violated Baal. So what does Yoash do to save his son? Now, by the way, it's interesting. Yoash is the seemingly the chieftain of Baal worship in this town. He's the one with the Mizbeach. He's the one with the Asherah. He's the one with the ox. And yet, when the people demand his son, what's his response? He saves his son. And watch how he does it. Are you going to save Baal? That's chutzpidik. 
Baal doesn't need your help. Anybody who Baal is angry at will kill him by the morning. You know, he saves his son by using counter logic of saying, you are the ones blaspheming Baal by saying he needs your help. If Baal is angry at somebody, he'll kill them. If he's really a god, then he'll fight his battle. He'll kill the person who took apart his veil. Of course, guess what happened? You don't woke up the next morning fine and healthy. And they called Gidon by another name. His new name became Yerubal. He's the guy who Baal's going to fight with. Not he's the one who fights against Baal, but he's the one who Baal's going to fight with because he destroyed him his back. And of course, it never happened. Baal doesn't, Baal doesn't exist. So you find this very odd story in, inside of a very odd book of Shoftim. But does this remind you of anything that you know about Avram Avinu? So, my, but, so clearly, the, we, we immediately recognize the Midrashim that we know of, of Avraham destroying his father's idols and engaging in a conversation. But in this case, what role does Gidon's father play with, with, uh, with, with Gidon? He's actually the protector, and he uses logic against the people of the town to save his son. All right? So keep that in mind. Now we have this very famous Midrash, and I, I give it to you in English. You all know this Midrash. We don't spend much time on it. It's the Midrash of, and in honor of today's wild card game, it's the Midrash of Avram and the baseball bat. Right? Um, you all know the story. Terach was a manufacturer of idols. Where did Chazal get the idea that Terach was a manufacturer of idols? Where'd they get that from? And now we have the story that he left Avram to sell them, which means, by the way, Terach wasn't necessarily a committed idolater. He was a businessman. And he had a shop, or maybe he had a shtibol with Svarim. In other words, he had a worship place, but he also sold idols. And Avram was in charge of selling them, and a man would walk in, and it's really cute how he would do it. Avram didn't close the shop. He didn't break the idols. What did he do? He let people come in to buy them, and as they were buying them, he would, under his breath, mutter, you're 50 years old, and you're buying a thing to worship that I just made this morning? Are you crazy? And the people would be embarrassed, and they'd walk out. So um, on another occasion, a woman came in with a plate full of flour, and she said, please offer it to them. So what does he do? He breaks all the idols, and he puts the flour and the stick in front of the largest idol. So his father comes home and says, what happened? All my merchandise is gone. He said, oh. A woman came with an offering, and they all got jealous, and they all wanted the offering. So the biggest one broke them all and took the offering for himself. And, of course, what does Terach do? Terach says, are you crazy? These things can't do anything. So uh, why don't you listen to what you're saying? Now, how is Terach portrayed here? At this point, he's portrayed really as a businessman who doesn't believe in it, seemingly. Which makes this next move so weird because Terach brings Avram to Nimrod. Nimrod and Avram, by the way, are both in Tanakh. They're both at the end of Parshat, uh, at some point in Parshat Noah. They never meet. They never cross paths. In the Midrash, they cross paths. And famously, Nimrod says, I worship the fire. You worship the fire. So Avram says, ooh, you want to worship fire? Let's worship water, because water puts out fire. It sounds like Chadgadia. So then Nimrod says, okay, I'll agree with you. Let's worship uh, water. He says, oh, worship the clouds, because the clouds can hold the water. Oh, very good. We'll worship clouds. 
Then he says, let's worship the wind, right? And he goes on and on until finally Nimrod is fed up and he says, forget it. You worship, you worship the fire. If you don't, I'll throw you into the fire. Let your God save you. We all know what happens. He throws Avram in the fire. Avram is saved, which is based on another story in Tanakh, Hanani Mishal Bezariah. And he comes out of the fire, which is all built on this one pasuk. I saved you, I pulled you out, which sounds exactly like what phrase? And so I'm the one who saved you from Ur Kastim. And if we and if we read Ur as a furnace, which is what it means in Hebrew, then I saved you out of the fire of Kastim suddenly becomes the source for this Midrash. But there's more than that as the, in the source of this Midrash because this Midrash also builds up Avraham as having a logical back and forth. It's not saying my God's better, your God's better. It's saying, oh, fire, so water, water, so clouds, clouds, so wind. Until finally the king gets frustrated. Which sounds a little bit like Yoashir, doesn't it? Saying, you want to kill Gidon for what he did? You're, you're being chutzpahed. That's not reasonable. If Baal's so powerful, let Baal fight his own battles. But there's something else that's got, to, that's got to be filled in here. And we're going to find it in a very unusual source. We're all familiar with Tanakh. We're all familiar with Midrashic literature. We're all familiar with uh, Talmudic literature. We all know that it exists. We all know more or less the time period that it came from. It may surprise you that there is a wealth, a whole library of Jewish texts that come from the early period or the middle period of Bayucheni, all the way actually until the destruction, that are not part of our library for the most part. They are something Chazal referred to as Hasfarim Achitzonim, or the, the, ex, the excluded books. And Hasfarim Achitzonim may have, may have included all the books that we don't have access to. There, was, there are dozens of works that were created by religious Jews religious Jews, but depending which sect they belong to, during the 3rd, 2nd, and 1st century BCE and 1st century CE. Some of them you know of because they're in the collection at Qumran, of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And many of them, almost all of them, were banned by the rabbis at a later point. And as a result of that, we didn't have access to them. How we ended up discovering them is itself an interesting historic story, something for a different year. But we refer to this whole collection as the Apocrypha. And there's the Apocrypha, and part of the Apocrypha is a, a set of texts that we refer to as the Pseudepigrapha, which means books that are attributed to particular authors, but not really by them. Wisdom of Solomon, Book of Enoch, etc., one of the most popular books in the Apocrypha is a book called Sefer Hayovlim, the Book of Jubilees. So I'm going to tell you three minutes about the Book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees, or Sefer Hayovlim, is a book from uh, probably the 2nd century BCE. Uh, the, by the way, we have almost all these books from other languages because they weren't preserved in Hebrew. Sefer Hayovlim, the one extant copy that we have of the entire Sefer Hayovlim, although there are shards of it in Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was actually found in Gez. Gez is the religious uh, language of the Ethiopian community. Uh, so we do have Jub- the original Jubilees in Gez, and it's been translated into English. It's available online. It's a, translated into Hebrew, and a wonderful work was done a few years ago by Kana Verman, a critical work on Sefer Yovlim. 
Sefer HaYovlim is a book, which you could tell by its title, which is a chronography. It is a book that puts the stories of Tanakh into a chronological framework by Jubilee, by Yovel. And so, as you see in the first verse here, and I'll tell you about what this is, it came to pass in the sixth week. Sixth week means the sixth Shemitah cycle in the seventh year. So it's the Shemitah year of cycle number six of what turns out to be the 37th, or 38th actually, um, uh, 39th Yovel. Right? 39th Yovel, because they're counting from the minute of creation, 50 years, and on and on. And now all of Sefer Yovlim is built on that. It's built on the notion of a chronography. Sefer Yovlim, according to its own testimony, was given to Moshe Rabbein on Harsinai, which means it records events up until and including Matan Torah. But that's it. However, it is the product of the 3rd century or 2nd century BCE, so it actually reflects a lot of other material. And so in telling the story of Avraham, you have the following, and this is what we might call proto-Midrash, or very early Midrashic literature. Came to pass in this year, Avram said to Terach, his father, saying, Father. By the way, in chapter 11, there's a really wild story. Take a look if you have a chance. But Avram and the ravens, look it up. It's really fun. And he said, Behold, here I am, my son. In other words, Avram says to Terach, Avi, and what does Terach say to him? Hineni bani. Where did the Midrash get that from? It got that from Yitzhak and Avram at the Akedah. And he said, what help and profit have we from these idols which you worship and before which you bow? There's no spirit. They are dumb forms, misleading of the heart. Worship them not. So according to this, Avram and Terach had a conversation. But in this story, Terach is actually an idolater, not just a seller. And Avram challenges him and has a debate with him. Again, this is informed by the Gidon story. Worship the God of heaven who causes the rain and dew to descend on the earth, etc. He's created everything. Why do you worship things that have no spirit? All right. And you hear basically the same kind of thing. Right. And they're a cause of great shame to those who make them, misleading of the heart. Look at verse 10. His father said to him, I also know it, my son. Meaning, Terach is saying, I know they're nonsense. What shall I do with the people who have made me to serve before them? Which means Terach is now portrayed as some sort of a priest of a cult. And he said, what do you want me to do? If I tell them the truth, they will slay me. If I tell the people what to do, they're going to kill me. But the soul cleaves to them to worship them and honor them. These people really want to worship this Avodah Zarah. I can't tell them that it's nonsense. So how is Terach portrayed here? He's portrayed really as a secret monotheist who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a job. Keep silent, my son, lest they slay thee. And you can hear echoes of the Yoash Gidon relationship here. And these words he spoke to his two brothers. So then Avram went to who? He went to Nahor, he went to Aran, said the same thing. And they were angry with him and he kept silent. In other words, he couldn't find anybody who would listen to him. Which, by the way, now you're getting a sense of the background of Lech Lecha. You have to leave because nobody in your house is listening to you. This Midrash is trying to explain all of those events that we looked at. Why is Avram told to leave and Dafka leave his father behind? Why is Avram selected? Because at an early age, on his own, he comes to this belief, and he also has the courage to stand up to it, for it, which others don't. Right? And then it goes on with more of the story, and there's actually a lot more here to read. You take a look at it. Um, one of the interesting things that happens here, at the end of... Um, um, second... Oh, at the end of this chapter, very interesting thing happens. You can, take this, you can read it on your own. Um, 
But take a look at this piece. Um, Avram prays to God. And he says, should I go back to Ur Kastim? And what does God say? Verse 27. Get thee up from your country and from your family and from the house of your father to a land which I will show you. Does that sound familiar? And I will make you a great numerous nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you'll be blessed in the earth. And through all the families, that's exactly Lech Lecha. And I'll bless those that bless you and curse you that curse you. But there's more. I will be a God to you and your son and your son's son and all your kids, meaning I'll be God for generations, forever. Fear not, because um, I am the God of all of the whole earth. And he said, and uh, open his mouth and his ears, that he may hear and speak with his mouth and his language that has been revealed. Cease from all mouth, right? And so he, he says, he, he asks, he, he, he grants Avram the ability, um, actually, so this is something, something different, right? And here's the part that I want to show you. And he, he now comes, he spoke to his father and informed him. He would leave Haran to go to the land of Canaan to see him and return. Remember the problem we have with Kiburav, with the problem of how can he leave his father behind? So he goes to Terach and says, I'm going to go to Canaan, and I'm going to come back. And Terach says, go in peace. May God, the one God, make your path straight. May God be with you and protect you. Does this sound familiar? Grant you grace, mercy, and favor. Right? In other words, basically, and if you see a land pleasant to dwell in, arise and bring me there. Right? In the meantime, you go in peace. Notice how the Avram-Terach relationship is described here. First of all, who is Terach? Terach is a big cult leader who realizes the emptiness of it, but can't do anything about it. Avram has two brothers who are, for whatever reason, not able to deal with the truth, but Avram realizes it. And then God commands Avram to leave all of that behind and to go to Canaan. And Terach is in on it with him. He says, if it's a good land, come and get me. Meantime, the story plays out how the story plays out. Now, what I'm trying to share with you is the following. The Midrashim, the various Midrashim that we're more familiar with, like the one about the baseball bat, are not coming out of nowhere. They're built on earlier traditions. What we looked at was maybe the earliest written tradition that we have that speaks about the Avram Terach relationship and presents it in terms that are much more sympathetic towards Terach. And sympathetic towards their relationship. But it comes to explain several things, including the big glaring thing, which is why does God tell Avram to leave his father's house behind? And, and um, the, the description here is not that Terach was an Obed of Zarah. If you read Yeshua carefully, it's that Nahor and Avram were of Devil Zarah. Avram left and Nahor never left them. Because he says, I took Avram and I brought him to the land. Nahor doesn't get that. And Nahor is kind of left behind and only comes in through Rivka and later through Rachel and Leah. So what we looked at over the past uh, 35 minutes or so was the text describing Avram and the way that Avram is presented within the scope of his family, some of the exegetical problems at the beginning of who's Haran, etc. And dealt with the big question of how can Avram as a role model of justice and ethical behavior leave his father behind and we see that the Midrash addresses this in several ways in one way in when the Midrash and Breshit Rabbah Terach was a terrible guy who was willing to hand his own son over to Nimrod to throw him in the fire 
On the other hand, in Yovlim, he's presented as a sympathetic character who wants Avram to go find the land and then eventually bring him there, that which does not play out. The history of the Midrashim is ultimately anchored in texts. It's anchored in the text in Breshit. It's anchored in half a pasuk in Yoshua. And it's anchored in a whole section in Shoftim about Gidon, who then becomes sort of a model for understanding Avraham. Avraham also has a piece of the story anchored in the story of Hanan and Mishal Bezariah, the three young men who were willing to go into the fire rather than worship Avodah Zarah. So hopefully this gives us a little bit of a broader picture of where the Midrashic image of Avram comes, what's driving the Midrash, and where it gets its ideas from um, in, in looking at really the first important character in Tanakh and the first person who we feel related to.